In the year 1788, a British statesman and baron in the House of Lords by the name of George Littleton, he set out to write a defense of the Christian faith. You see, Littleton was a very pious Christian, and he was really deeply disturbed by the mood of skepticism that had taken hold in England at that time, with many people putting forward arguments against the miraculous and against the supernatural. And so Littleton himself, he set out to put forth his own argument, one that would offer a rational defense of the faith. It, what he wrote was an immediate hit. The famous literary critic, Dr. Samuel Johnson, was so impressed that he described the argument of Littleton's as one to which an infidel has never been able to fabricate a specious answer. Another contemporary at the time said that Littleton's work was masterly and as perfect in its kind as any our age has produced. Now, what's fascinating about all of this is what George Littleton chose to focus his argument on. You might expect some kind of philosophical argument for the existence of God or some defense of the resurrection, but no, George Littleton focused his defense of Christianity on the story of one man's conversion. Now, here's how he put it in the introduction to his work. I think the conversion and apostleship of St. Paul alone, duly considered, is of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation. Saul didn't just approve of the execution of Stephen. He seemed to almost take this event as a personal calling. Luke tells us later that Saul was ravaging the church throughout Jerusalem, dragging off men and women to prison. It's not clear exactly what was motivating him at the time. In Galatians, when he himself recalls this time later on and writes to the churches in Galatia about it, he says that he was advancing in Judaism and that he was zealous for the traditions that had been handed down to him. And this word that he uses in Galatians, this word of being zealous, it suggests that maybe young Saul saw himself in a line of earlier Jewish heroes, people like Phineas or the prophet Elijah, those who had been driven by zeal for God and had purified Israel by destroying idolatry. And maybe that's how Saul saw himself, that he was another Phineas, another Elijah who had come to bring judgment on blasphemy and idolatry of those who rejected Torah. Well, whatever it was, Saul gets a letter from the chief priest and it gives him authority to arrest any Christians, any followers of the way, as they are called at that time, and bring them to Jerusalem for trial. So Saul gets this letter, this this letter of authority, and he heads north to the city of Damascus in modern-day Syria. And then, as he's on the road, all of a sudden, he is hit with this blinding light, and he falls down, and he hears a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul, it names him twice, why are you persecuting me? And Saul naturally asks who this voice is that's speaking to him. 
And the response is, this is Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then Jesus gives him directions. Go into the city of Damascus, he tells Saul. And Saul, when he gets up, he has been blinded. He cannot see. So he has to be led by the companions who are with him into the city of Damascus, to the house of someone named Judas on a street that is called Straight. Now, interestingly, this street called Straight still exists in Damascus to this day. It goes by the name of Bob Sharkey today, but you can still see it in modern day Damascus. Well, after we're told this about Paul, all of a sudden the scene changes. And Luke starts to tell us about a disciple who's living in Damascus named Ananias. And Ananias receives a vision. He's told to go meet Saul and to lay hands on him so that Saul can regain his sight. Now, Ananias does not like this plan at all. He's heard of Saul. He's heard of the violence committed against Christians and the plans that Saul has to arrest more. But God tells Ananias that he has plans for Saul. He has a mission for him. Saul will be his chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So Ananias goes and he lays hands on him and he tells Saul why he is there. And when he lays hands on him and tells Saul why he is there to pray for him, Saul's sight is restored. Here's what we read about that encounter. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So what can we learn from this story? Without a doubt, it's a remarkable story of conversion. This man going on the road to Damascus, being blinded by a light, hearing a voice calling from the heavens, and then meeting this man, Ananias. But what lessons does it have for us today? I want to mention three lessons that I think we can learn from this story in Acts chapter 9. And the first is that salvation is an unexpected and altogether surprising gift. You know, years after Paul's Damascus Road experience, he will write his letter to the churches in Ephesus, the letter of Ephesians in the New Testament. And in that letter, he'll talk about how a person's conversion from a state of spiritual death to spiritual life is purely the result of God's work, of God's grace. Here's how Saul puts it. Here's how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, this is just one example of countless times in his letters that Paul makes this point. Salvation is purely a gift. It's a work of grace, something God does. It's not a human achievement. It's not a result of diligent study. It's not the consequence of hard work. It's not some kind of reward for moral zeal. Paul certainly had that. Salvation is a gift. And it's a gift that's given to the undeserving. And Paul doesn't just teach this. He models it in his own life, in his own story here in Acts. 
When we first encounter him as the young Saul of Tarsus, he is a self-righteous oppressor, someone who is going after early Christians, imprisoning them, oppressing them. He has blood on his hands. If you were reading Acts for the first time, you probably expect God to show up sometime soon after you meet Saul for God to show up and strike him dead, just like he did Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five when they were resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not just that Paul is violent. It's not just that he's harming God's people. This young Saul, he is warring against Jesus himself. He is the enemy of the Lord. But what Paul goes on to tell us later in his letters is that this wasn't just true of him. As he says in his letter to the Romans, we all, you and I included, we all at one time were the enemies of God. And until you understand that, you can't really understand why salvation is such a great gift, why it is so incredible, as Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians. You know, when I think about this, about how salvation is a pure gift. It reminds me of a poem that I came across several years ago by the poet Wendell Berry. And in this poem, he's talking about growing old, his experience of growing old, and he's reflecting on that. And then he starts thinking about his wife. And here's what he says in his poem. And you, speaking to his wife, and you who are as old almost as I am, I love as I loved you young, except that old, I am astonished at such a possibility and am duly grateful. Why is Wendell Berry so grateful for this love? It's because he says he is astonished. He is surprised. He sees the possibility of love with his wife now in his old age, as an unexpected, a surprising gift that he has done nothing for. And when I read Paul's letters and what he says about salvation as a gift, I, I think that Paul feels very much the same about salvation as Wendell Berry does about the love of his wife. He didn't earn it. There was nothing he could do. It just came to him. He was fighting against Jesus, but Jesus interrupted him on that road. He blinded him, knocked him down. He spoke to him. He gave him new sight. And because of that, Paul feels astonished and he is duly grateful. And that's the first lesson for us in this story. Salvation is an unexpected and surprising gift for all of us. And the second lesson that I think we learn here is that God uses other people to communicate that gift. It is a gift entirely from God, but God uses other people to share that gift with us. Uh, you re may remember in the last session when we discussed the story of Philip and the Ethiopian, I, I noted there that although God is clearly the main actor in this story of Philip and the Ethiopian's encounter, it's also very clear that God is not the only actor 
that he uses Philip, this deacon, this evangelist. And the same thing is taking place here in Acts chapter 9. It's perfectly clear that God is the main actor in Paul's conversion. After all, it's Christ that blinds Paul on the road to amaze it on the road to Damascus, that interrupts his story, that starts speaking to him, that directs him where to go, that shows up in a vision to Ananias. God directs it all. But it's equally clear that God chooses to use other people to bring Saul into faith. He uses Saul's traveling companions who lead him into Damascus, but he especially uses this one man, Ananias, and this is the first time that we have heard of Ananias in the book of Acts. And after this, we really hear nothing more about him. And when Paul recounts this story later in Acts chapter 22, he says that Ananias was a devout Jew who was well spoken of by the people. But other than that, we really know nothing about him. He certainly seems to be rather inconsequential when you compare him to the apostle Paul. Martin Luther, in his commentary on this story, says that Ananias was not even one finger tall before Paul. He was like a candle before the sun. Still, Paul in this way received light from this little matchstick, from this little doctor, Ananias. The question is, why use this little matchstick at all? Why would God not simply heal Paul directly? This is something that we see all throughout Acts. God is constantly at work by his spirit in Acts, bringing people to salvation, often in surprising ways. But at the same time, he consistently uses other people to do so. He doesn't just do it himself. That's the second lesson for us in this story. And the third lesson that I think we can draw is that the gift of salvation, this surprising, unexpected gift, this gift that's communicated through other people, the gift of salvation is one that turns enemies into family. Now, George Littleton, that English baron, said that Paul's conversion was a miracle, a miracle so great that it in and of itself was a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity is a divine revelation. And all that's true, but the miracle is not just that Saul, this zealous, bloodthirsty young Saul, was turned from being an enemy to being an apostle. The miracle is also that Saul was reconciled to those that just moments before he was persecuting, he was seeking to imprison. And maybe, maybe that's why God uses this man, Ananias. Ananias, when he first received a vision from God to tell him to go meet this young Saul, he was very resistant to going. He didn't want to go. Maybe he was a little bit like the prophet Jonah who didn't want to go to Nineveh. Maybe he knew that God would would somehow have grace on Saul, and he was resistant to it. But when Ananias does show up, what does he say to Saul? What does he call him? He doesn't call him enemy. 
He doesn't approach trepidatiously. He doesn't stand back. He lays his hands on him and he says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias calls him brother. And later in chapter 9, Saul goes to Jerusalem where he is reconciled to the Christians there, those people that he himself was throwing in jail. This, what we see in this story, illustrates something that's absolutely fundamental to the gospel. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because of what is going on through Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, people who are enemies are made no longer enemies. Now, enemies are potential friends and family. And this is completely at odds with the way of the world in ancient Rome. And it's very countercultural today, too. I like how the Cuban-American theologian, Justo Gonzalez, puts it in his commentary on Acts. Here's what he says. When it was least expected, this Saul, who is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, becomes a brother to Ananias and to those very disciples whom until then he persecuted. Likewise, that unbeliever who now scorns us, that inordinately wealthy one who lives it up while the people suffer, that journalist who lies about us because someone pays him to do so, even that sergeant who tortures one of our sisters or brothers, any one of them may one day fall to the ground on the Damascus road. In such a case, even though our natural inclination, like that of Ananias, may be exactly the opposite, we have no other alternative than to call them brother or sister and treat them as such. Now, this is perhaps one of the most astonishing things about Christianity in comparison with the normal ways of the world. Hostility, resentment, anger, tribalism, all of those things are easily explicable and we expect to find them in the world. But a community of former enemies and rivals who now treat each other as a family, calling each other brother and sister, that, that is nothing short of a miracle. And yet, according to Acts, that is the mission of the church.